Welcome to the Beautiful Illusions Podcast, where two friends, Jeff and Darren, ponder the intersection of reality, consciousness, and culture. These conversations comprise an ongoing attempt to construct meaning by exploring art and science, enriching our understanding of the context underpinning our current moment in time, and imagining possible futures for human civilization. Of course, we don't claim any special knowledge, expertise, or insight into any of these topics. We just enjoy learning, thinking, and talking about big ideas, deep questions, and the beautiful illusion that is the subjective human experience. In today's episode, Craft Beer Culture, A Personal History, Jeff and I talk about our experiences and relationship with beer from our late teens to present day. In the process of highlighting a few specific beers and their associated memories that hold special significance for us, we explore our relationship to the once burgeoning but now booming world of craft beer. We examine how our own personal tastes and interests evolved along with the craft industry and how craft beer exemplifies active participation in culture. As always, a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference can be found on our website, beautifulillusions.org. And now for today's episode, Craft Beer Culture, A Personal History. During the pandemic, one of my little moments of solace or little treats to myself that I've been doing, I've been taking trips up to Treehouse Brewery in Massachusetts. And I mean, part of it is actually the drive. It's an hour-long drive up past Sturbridge, and it's just peaceful. And I listen to podcasts. I either listen to Mindscape or Brain Science. I love my children, but it's a little bit of a break. And then I go up and I get to this Treehouse Brewery that they built a couple of years ago, and it's this like mecca shrine of craft beer that you're looking at the brewers association trade group which represents the majority of american brewing companies defines an american craft brewer as a small independent brewer with an annual production of six million barrels or less which represents roughly three percent of annual american beer production although the vast majority produce way less than this the number was increased from two million barrels in 2011 to reflect the growth of the industry for reference, the Treehouse Brewing Company has the capacity to produce about 150,000 barrels per year at its current facility, which opened in 2017, whereas the Boston Beer Company, makers of Sam Adams and one of the largest craft breweries in the U.S., brewed about 5.3 million barrels in 2019. Additionally, an independent brewer is one in which less than 25% of the craft brewery is owned or controlled by a beverage alcohol industry member that is not itself a craft brewer. They have an amazing system so that you don't interact with anybody. They bring a hand cart out. So it's very in line with the pandemic. But then you could look at the brewery and you see it. They have this giant pavilion they built and there's hand carved hops everywhere. I buy way more beer than I should. I usually buy three to four cases and it ends up being a pretty penny. But I drive back and I just kind of feel good. And then I have a beer in my fridge that when I feel these waves of bad feelings and I could go in and I grab this beer that People on the West Coast are completely jealous that I have. Like yesterday, I brought over these beers to you. I brought over King Julius, very hazy, and Julius with multiple J's and multiple S's. And these three beers, for me to have at one time, this is like the first time that anybody's been able to do this. 
And we were able to split them yesterday and taste like three of the best beers in the world, according to many standards. Yeah, it's funny. They were really good beers, too. I was just thinking as you were saying that and telling that story, how one of the things I've always said over the years, because I've never been to Treehouse, but I've had the beer many times and it's amazing delicious beer. And it's even funny that I would use that word about a beer delicious, but that's what it is. Right. And the beer showed up at my house. Like it always does. It just seems that like I happen to know people who will get this beer. That's like this at one time would be considered this rare, hard to get beer, like you were alluding to there. And then it just shows up at my house. And, um, you know, it's part of that whole kind of idea that very much with this craft beer culture that's evolved where, it's about sharing and it's about trying these different things and it's about having them with other people, not necessarily sitting in your house and hoarding it all, right? I always appreciated that because this is actually our first attempt to record remotely. Uh, so we already experimented with recording outside in the garage. Um, it's way too cold for that at this point. So it might sound a little different today because I'm sure at some point our connections or our computers, you know, they cut out a little bit. We get some digitized noise again, trying to adapt to some new situations. And so while it is sad that we can't share the beer right now while we are actually having this conversation, we did have the opportunity to do it yesterday. And I thank you for bringing it because it was good. And I think uh, two of those I had never had before. They were all great. Yeah. And just like you said before, the idea of sharing and the idea of this whole subculture of craft beer, it's a perfect way for us to try to do this thing we've been talking about, examining how culture affects us both unconsciously and consciously. What is your interaction with this craft brewery? Because we both started pretty much at the same time. I think both of us kind of didn't drink regularly in high school. We weren't at the hockey parties getting hammered with the rest of the high school kids. That was like a semi-conscious decision for me, but it was also just like, uh, I hated anything that was popular in high school. I hated anything that everybody else was doing for various reasons. And I didn't want to be in there. But then both of us happened to shift and start drinking a little bit more as these craft beers start to come in. I think we both remember this moment. You ended up having a small party. We didn't have a huge keg party. We ended up having a small party at your house when your parents were away one weekend. And I remember being very nervous about going to the local package store down the street from your house with our other friend and buying two 12-packs. I bought a 12-pack of Rolling Rock. I don't know why. Uh, Rolling Rock always had this allure of being like slightly better than the other American lagers. Uh, I think it was just rarer. And Newcastle, I don't even, where did we hear about Newcastle Brown Ale? Do you I, know? I can't remember at all. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> but somehow we did. Because prior to that, you know, my experience was just all with, and it's funny that you even use the word lager to describe Rolling Rock because there's no way at that time in our lives, we were calling it lagers or even understood that there was this major dichotomy between ales and lagers and how they were different from one another. But, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, you know, most of what you think of when you think of like, you know, American beer, if you're talking about like Budweiser, Miller, Coors, all those beers, those are lager beers, right? And largely what became the craft beers were mostly ales, actually. Generally speaking, lager-style beers are brewed with yeast strains that prefer colder temperatures and typically have a long period of cold fermentation, or lagering, which for various reasons you can read about, suppresses many of the byproducts of fermentation, allowing the beer to be very clean-tasting, with a focus on the malt and hop flavors. 
Examples of lager-style beers would be Pilsner's, Bach-style beers, Oktoberfest-style beers, and well-known brands like Budweiser, Coors, Heineken, Corona, and Sam Adams Boston Lager. For various historical reasons, lager dominates world beer production. Ales, on the other hand, are brewed with yeast strains that prefer warmer temperatures, the very same strains used by bread bakers, and do not tend to have a long cold fermentation. They feature many flavor characteristics produced by the byproducts of fermentation at warmer temperatures. Examples of ale-style beers would be pale ales, India pale ales or IPAs, double IPAs, and stout. The American craft beer boom has been largely driven by breweries pushing the boundaries of various ale styles, particularly IPA and stout. So I don't remember how we ended up getting the Newcastle, but it did show up at our house. And, you know, mom and dad, I think you're well aware by now that, uh, you know, these things, these little get togethers happened occasionally when you were uh, out of town or, or away for a few days. And, and that, like you said, we weren't going out. I wasn't at any of these huge blowouts in the woods or any of these giant parties that I would hear about every once in a while. And I wasn't trying to seek out drinking or really necessarily trying to avoid it. It was just more like it was a thing that I wasn't around the people who were doing it until very late in high school. And then all of a sudden it was these small little house party get together things where somebody's parents would be away and I don't think I ever questioned the idea of drinking beer, though. It just seemed like a thing that for me, and this is me speaking very personally now, like a thing that almost all the men that I knew did, right? They drank beer. My dad drank beer from when I was, as far as I can remember, my first taste of beer would have been out of my dad's bottle when he'd grab him a beer and, hey, you want a slug? And I have a memory of being in the yard at my house and having a slug of cold beer on a hot day. And that's like my formative memory. And I still like that flavor in my mind is what I think of when I think of beer. So I don't know where the Newcastle came from. <laughs> yeah, I think as American suburban males growing up through the 80s and into the 90s, it's unnatural for us to not drink beer. That's like part of the culture is that we are going to be beer drinkers because I had very similar experience. Uh, my dad and mom would have my mom and dad would have ragers, if I'm being honest, when I was a little kid. And it's still very much in this classical model. The guys would go golfing. The women would all gather and start to get the food together. And then they come over and initially it was Genesee cream ale, probably because it was cheap. And then he slowly evolved into a Coors Light drinker, which to me was every dad's beer because that's what I knew of. And at these parties, I was like eight years old and I was my dad's personal servant, basically. And he said, Jeff, give me, give me a beer. And then he usually tell me, yeah, get this guy a beer, get this guy a beer, uh, go get us some beers. And this was my like negotiation. Can I get a sip? And I'd be so excited. I'd run into my dad and mom had a beer fridge pretty much my whole life. And I'd run down and I'd grab the Coors Lights or like slowly Bud Light showing up because of the younger guys that are at the party. And I'd bring him. I would open it. It was because it was fun to open it when you were a kid, too. And then I'd take my sip and I probably didn't think it tasted that good. I don't remember that initial flavor, but just the feeling of being like, oh, I'm one of the guys or like I'm with my dad right now. And look, I'm cool. Uh, that was a big part of it, I guess. Yeah, well, and I, I think there was very much the feeling of, you know, this is obviously something that's forbidden because it was like a secret from dad to me, you know, like it wasn't something that my mother was ever going to do. And nor do I ever really remember my mother drinking beer or really even drinking at all. When I think of my mother when I was a, a kid, that's not a predominant memory of mine. But being at a barbecue and beers being around, you know, or being out in the yard or at a picnic or whatever, I mean, that was like, I mean, 
it would have been weird to have been at a picnic where that wasn't going on, put it that way. So it's kind of like, this is a thing that adults do. And so, you know, you're curious about that kind of stuff when you're a little kid. And even if you don't like it, you probably think that it's still the kind of thing that you're going to grow to like, or you got to keep doing it because the adults do it too. Um, And, you know, that's a whole maybe other conversation about alcohol and culture that we'll probably have at some point. But I just think that it ended up that by the time we were at the end of high school, for both of us and for many of our friends, there was just no real question about it. It was like you were going to drink beer. You know, people obviously drank other things, too. But for us, I think in the way we both grew up in what would be considered very traditional nuclear family situations now from looking back from 2020 to, you know, the 80s and the 90s, as you kind of alluded to before, there was no question about it. And so we end up with this 12 pack of Rolling Rock right? Which is like a a much more traditional American lager and Newcastle, which is a brown ale, which actually comes from England. And we had this really funny experience and it was formative, right? For sure. So this is my first foray into, uh, I I believe I made the lineup. Uh, We'll talk about beer lineups as we go through in uh, our craft beer lineups that we eventually start constructing. But I made the lineup that night and I was like, we're going to drink the Newcastle first because I don't know, I've heard about it or you heard about it. Somebody told me this is good beer. So we start drinking this 12 pack in Newcastle and we're like, oh man, this is this isn't what my dad used to have me sip. This is good. This like has flavor. I really like this. And then a couple beers in, we crack open the Rolling Rock 12 pack. And I remember the taste almost exactly. And, you know, my mind's constructing a story. And we were both at the same point where we we're trying to make ourselves more cultural. Uh, so when I would say like in every taste, not just in our intellectual taste, but like um, foods, um, we were trying to find mom and pop diners, uh, beers, Uh, was a part of this larger thing where we're trying to make ourselves cultural and to find a beer that tasted better. And then like we sip Rolling Rock and we looked at each other and we're like, this tastes like rotten tomatoes. I don't know if you have the memory like me. I'm interested to see. But I remember like thinking rotten tomatoes, man. I don't think I drank the Rolling Rock that night. I think I just went right back to the Newcastle and kept drinking that until, um, you know, I felt good. Yeah, that's my memory of it too. But again, it's one of those things that, you know, knowing what I know about memory now is probably almost certainly not true, but who knows? Um, I actually even remember in my mind, we were at my parents' house sitting in the front room, one of us sitting on the couch at the end towards the window, towards the end of the house and like the mental image, that's how strong it is. And I just remember thinking like, oh, this beer tastes gross, like rotten tomatoes, like you said. And now thinking about it, you know, it is interesting that Newcastle is an ale and you know, Rolling Rock is a lager and that lager style beer is very much the old passive culture of American beer drinking, right? It's like, this is just what you do. You have a cold lager beer, you mow the grass, you come in, you have a beer, you know, like this is like the manly thing. Everybody does it. It's not questioned. It's the beer that's always been there from the moment we were born, right? It's always been a Bud or it's been a Coors or it's been a Miller, you know, one of those. Um, And actually that's probably what appealed to us about Rolling Rock because it wasn't one of those ubiquitous, it seemed like somehow it was a little more niche. But then that Newcastle, maybe I guess coincidental now that like it just happened to be an ale that was the gateway for us because essentially, like I said before, really the backbone of what became this huge American craft boom was built on the back of beers that are all essentially ales, not so much lagers. Yes. And I think for both of us, because of the way we were in high school, a little bit more um, introverted, the social lubricant aspect of the beer also kind of drew us to just the drinking in general. You know, you drink a beer and you feel a little bit more comfortable talking to people. But uh, again, we had this other aspect where we were trying to look for things that had more 
depth to them, if you want to say, or something like that. So I'm in college and I'm drinking beer as a social lubricant and I'm drinking beer specifically to get drunk. And we buy the cheapest beer and we play beer pong with it. You know, we're buying ice beer because it makes you drunk faster. We're doing the things that college students do, which is a dangerous pathway that I think we both recognize that you could go down and we both did some stupid things down that pathway. But then I remember specifically going back to my roommate's house in Eastern Maryland. Uh, it must have been sophomore year. And we went to this guy's house. He was a little bit older than us, must have been mid-20s or early 30s. And we were drinking in his garage. And he's this older guy who's kind of doing things that we want to do. Um, and he has this keg. And it's uh, we start drinking it. And it's like, holy cow, this is awesome. What is this? This this has a lot of flavor. Uh, this isn't like any beer I've ever had. And he, it's Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And this is like 97, 98. So getting a keg of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale at that point in time is not an easy thing. And this guy has one in his garage and I'm drinking it. And suddenly this new level starts to happen. Like the Newcastle is this first level. It's like, oh, there's there's flavor in beer. And then it's like, oh, wow. And I don't know about craft beer. I don't know about Sierra Nevada's history. I just taste this beer and I'm like, whoa, this is something I like. Yeah, that's interesting. And for me, you know, because I had a somewhat similar experience uh, with that particular beer. Um, but one of the things that for me was happening from the end of high school through college, beer for me was almost like an identity marker. It was like a thing that I could be good at which sounds crazy, but like I actually, when I look back at how things went, it earned me social credibility that I was like a quote, good beer drinker. I could drink a lot of beer and it was like, everybody was entertained by that. And like, I, I recognize totally now how completely damaging of a way to derive any self-worth out of being a good beer drinker. But I mean, for me, that was very much a thing, right? It, it was something that other people looked at me and were like, oh, you know, Darren can do that. That's that's a pretty cool thing that Darren can do. And unfortunately, like the culture of late teenage years and early 20s is very much built around some of those kinds of weird social things that maybe aren't the best for us. Although alcohol use is a complex cultural phenomenon that can potentially serve a variety of pro-social purposes, it is one that merits a much more thoughtful look due to its potential for harm, particularly amongst young people. According to the American Addiction Centers and Alcohol.org, the use of alcohol has been normalized in almost every culture. But it should be noted that alcohol is a toxin and regular use can lead to medical, mental health, and social problems. In the U.S., alcohol is the most commonly used substance of abuse among young people. Individuals aged 12 to 20 account for 11% of all the alcohol consumed, more than 90% of which is consumed by binge drinking. Current drinking culture can make it difficult for parents and young people to fully understand the severity and potential consequences of alcohol abuse. Teens may drink because of peer pressure, experimentation, stress, or other reasons, and this risky behavior can lead to an alcohol use disorder, and heavy alcohol use in the teenage years can cause lasting cognitive deficits and alter the course of brain development as the brain continues to mature into a person's early 20s. Other dangers associated with underage drinking include impaired judgment, which can lead to violent behavior and drinking and driving, increased risk of carrying out or suffering from physical or sexual assault, injuries, increased risk of later alcohol problems, and death. The CDC estimates that alcohol plays a role in the deaths of 4,358 individuals under age 21 each year on average. As I moved out of college, again, starting to go into you know, this idea of instead of just 
consuming beer as like a thing that gets you buzzed and drunk, but a thing that actually tastes good. And then you can start to pursue it and appreciate it on a deeper level, which is funny because you and I both, I think, like to do this where we take a thing and then go deeper. Right. And so we did that both with beer as we're going to talk about. And it really kind of starts here. And, and the reason I had Sierra Nevada or my memory of it was that my dad and I, you know, we both really like Neil Young. And we were watching this Neil Young DVD, which at the time it was like one of the first DVDs I'd ever seen. So it was amazing because it was this solo Neil Young concert and he's surrounded by all these guitars and he's playing these songs and it's awesome. And he's telling stories and he has this on the stool next to him with like his harmonicas and his little cup of water that he dips his harmonicas into before he plays them. He's got this beer sitting there with a green label on it that he's just taking a swig from every couple of songs. And it's like, what is that beer? And it was Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, right? And and so my memory is that my dad or I, one of us got a six pack of that based on the fact that Neil Young was drinking it. And it's still, I think, maybe my dad's favorite beer. And, you know, he loved it. But that was my real introduction to drinking a beer that really had that what would be considered now like that really American hop forward, like what anyone who's uninitiated would drink it and go, this is really bitter. And it's got like a, a piney kind of taste to it. And that bitter piney taste, that's hops. That's what you're tasting. And to me, that was like a whole new realm of flavor opportunity in beer that I hadn't experienced before. You know, I had been drinking Sam Adams and like Harpoon and some of these other kinds of beers, but those again, Sam Adams is a lager. Uh, and, you know, Sierra Nevada to me was the beginning of really like drinking a beer for a reason other than to just get drunk. It was more like, oh, I actually like the way this beer tastes. Our paths diverge at this point, but it's funny because we kind of head down a, a similar route. So I moved to California and I had been to San Francisco before this. And what's amazing about San Francisco is that at this point in time is that you go into every bar, it, every bar has Sierra Nevada because California is one of the original craft brewery places. And what I start to realize as I'm living in California is that there's a history to this that we're not starting from year zero. There is this guy, Ken Grossman, starts Sierra Nevada in 1981. And there's an actual brewery that I could go to. I remember my older cousin worked for Anheuser-Busch. So I, the brewery in my mind was this giant thing where Clydesdales went walking by. And I think we went to one when I was a kid. But then out in California, I met my future wife and we started to connect over beer. She actually likes Sierra Nevada too. And we went to the Sierra Nevada brewery and it was one of the best trips ever. It was like Chico, California. And we did the brewery tour and it was just like, there's something behind this whole thing. And there's a person who started this thing that really wanted to change the way people viewed and drink beer. He trying to make people think of beer in this different way. And we ended up going to a couple other breweries, North Coast Brewery, which also now ships across the United States. And we went to we never went to Lagunitas, which we were really close to, but we went to Anchor Steam, which is, if you look at the history of craft brewery, it's seminal. I still have a basic understanding, but the way my brain works, like, oh, all right, so this isn't just flavorful, but it has this cool history of small guys trying to go against these corporate behemoths. And as a part of my culture, I just always struggled with the corporate behemoth trying to crush the little guy. So to see Sierra Nevada fighting against that and to see all these guys, it like made me just dive in further, you know, whether this is conscious or I think it's a blending of both. Right. Uh, but it just adds to this already forming connection I have. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going in on this. 
Yeah, as I'm listening to you talk about it, I'm thinking about how much you can really make the craft story into a almost like a romantic tale of like the little guy, you know, David versus Goliath, these scrappy little upstarts, you know, that are going to go out there and, and we're going to put this product out and we're going to compete with these, like you said, industry behemoths, you know. So you have this situation in the United States where you have prohibition in the 20s. And basically what happens is there was a very robust culture of brewing in the United States prior to that time. There's all these tiny little breweries all around the country. But once prohibition comes along, it's really only these huge companies that can survive um, by doing other things during that time. All these small little breweries close down. And once prohibition is gone, you know, you have these breweries, these big three breweries, Miller, Coors and Budweiser. And basically what happens is that's the beer that the people who are in World War II, that's what they're drinking. And then when they come home after World War II, that's the beer that's huge. And there's also laws in place where you can't brew beer at home past a certain amount. And it can't be more than like this minuscule bit of alcohol, like 0.5% or something like that. And basically in the late seventies, a couple of laws get changed. And now all of a sudden you can brew up to like 500 gallons of beer at home and you can brew it with higher percentages of alcohol. And essentially, this cultural homebrewing starts. And then there's a national homebrewing society that gets started. And, and almost all of these original smaller breweries. So when you're talking about like Sierra Nevada, these are people who were homebrewers first. They were lovers of that hobby. And then they brought that to people and created this whole other segment within the beer industry, which was what would come to be known as craft beer, right? Where the emphasis is on these smaller brewers, they're innovating. They're trying new hop varieties. They're trying new flavors. They're bringing all these new things to market and people loved it. And, you know, and it is a really cool kind of thing because it's a hobby. And for almost everybody that got into craft, at least initially, it was just a hobby that they did before it was a business that they were able to pursue. Right. And, and, and I think we both kind of connect to that because th these are people that were doing things because they were passionate about it and they loved it and they loved the culture and they loved the product. And then they also wanted to bring it to other people. And there's something enticing about that as a consumer, because I want to help you do that. And the way I help you do that is by giving you my money and drinking your beer. Yeah, that storyline just so much appealed to my mid 20 self. This idea of the person caring more, whether this is true or not, the idea that this person cares almost more about the product than they do about the profit or that the product is more important to them maybe than Budweiser. Although, I, I mean, I've since grown and realized that even Budweiser, the product is important to them because they have to keep their customers and they want consistency in this product. But at that point in my life, that's the narrative I wanted to live. I wanted to live this anti-corporate American narrative where little guys and smaller business can come into the world and not be crushed by this giant thing. And you reminded me of this the other day because we actually had, uh, I think we were too lazy at this point in our life to ever do it. But we had these fantasies of starting our own brew pub. I remember sitting in a brew pub in Salt Lake City when we did our cross country trip. Uh, it was a weird brew pub because Salt Lake City has these specific alcohol rules where you can't brew anything over 3.2% at the time period because of their connection to the Mormon church. And sitting in that brew pub with you and a couple of our other buddies and discussing like starting our own brew pub. But you way more so than me started to dive into this idea of homebrewing because I think you had more of a connection through your uncle Stuart to this idea of homebrewing. Yeah. So my uncle Stu was brewing beer for a long time. I mean, 
you know, when you go to his house, if you go down in his basement, he basically turned his whole basement into like a little beer bar and he collects beer trays and old beer cans. And he's got a five tap kegerator in his basement and he's been brewing since at least the mid nineties. Um, so that's well before I was 21 and really, you know, drinking beer. And so Stu's homebrew was always kind of like a feature at any of our family events. I can remember going home from college this time of year, uh, holiday break, right? Christmas, freshman year and being out on the back porch with Uncle Stu and my dad. And, you know, I was like a big man freshman in college. That was like the first time I ever drank out in the open in front of my parents more than just a sip. It was like, okay, now because I was at college and it was drinking Uncle Stu's brown ale that was out on the back deck. He had a little two gallon keg of it that was out there and we were drinking that. And, you know, I got really interested in that. And then we started going to this ale festival that was always on the Sunday between the football NFC and AFC championship games in January and, and the Super Bowl on that off Sunday, there would be this real ale festival and you'd have to go wait in line for the tickets. Um, they'd sell them the day after Thanksgiving on that on Black Friday, you'd go wait in line, you'd get the tickets and it would always sell out. And the thing that was cool about it was it's basically all these brewers that are brewing these cask ales just for that day. A real ale, or cask ale, is an unfiltered beer that is put into a small keg, or cask, after its primary fermentation period and sealed. The slight secondary fermentation that takes place in the cask is the only source of carbonation, unlike typical keg beer that is carbonated under CO2 pressure, which is also used to dispense the beer once tapped. Because of this difference, real ales tend to have a much gentler level of carbonation, a softer mouthfeel, and since they are unfiltered, they usually have a slightly more complex flavor and aroma profile. The ales are often cloudy and served around 55 degrees Fahrenheit, and because they are not stored under CO2 pressure, they spoil quickly after opening, so they're not good options for commercial products. Cask ales are often used by brewers to experiment with new recipes and try various flavor additions, and even cask versions of tried-and-true recipes will taste different than what is bottled, canned, or kegged using more standard methods. For this reason, real ales are sought after by beer aficionados. Right. And so you'd go and you get a little commemorative glass and you get a few slices of pizza and you get these tickets and you're just trying all these different beers. And then you got in on that, too. And we did that a bunch. And then eventually I wanted to brew beer. And it was my uncle that taught me how to do it, although that didn't come till a little bit later. Um, but like all of those things were happening and like really being at that real ale festival was my first real exposure to the not underground, but behind the scenes beer culture where like you got to interact with all these brewers and like, you could just go talk to the brewer. You'd get a little sample of the beer and the person standing behind the cask pouring it was probably the person who actually brewed it. And they would talk to you about what they did and they would talk to each other. And it was just like, it was this really vibrant community. Right. And it, it seemed really cool. And I was like, and everybody who was there, even people you didn't know, it was just like, you could talk to almost anybody in that place and be like, Oh, I tried that one. It was good. Did you have this one yet? Oh, go try that one over there. And it, it was just a really cool thing to be a part of at that time. Yeah. And this is the point where we reconverge because I can go back to Connecticut around the corner from you. And uh, we both like started to get a little bit of this history in our head, but this is where it explodes. Because like you said, at the real ale festival, you see these people and you see them maybe once a year, but it's the same faces. And then things started to happen like around the, the economics of craft brewery. I've been reading a little bit about it. It's pretty awesome how uh, like a craft brewery will start and then 
because craft is very much about being artisanal and homemade and doing it as locally as possible, you start to see other things pop up around it, like bakeries, because the craft brewery will have local bakeries involved. And of course, this all fits into my already developing ethos. So Micro, the beer bar opens up in Hamden. And we never really had this type of restaurant. And it's got like 20 beers on tap. And they do these beer takeover dinners. So my wife and I went to the Sierra Nevada one. And just what's funny about it, talking about community, is we ended up sitting with two people because they put four people at a table. And the people we sat with were part of this beer culture in the New Haven area. And I ended up seeing this guy who I sat across from at the Real Ale Festival. I saw him at all these other little tastings. And the Real Ale Festival through your Uncle Stuart is when I realized that we were part of a, it wasn't just about me exploring something that tastes good or me exploring something that had uh, more culture to it. But I looked around and I was like, I am part of a community. I am part of a culture. This is the craft beer culture. And it happens to coincide with the blowing up of Connecticut breweries too. Yeah, I remember at this time going over to uh, New England Brewing Company, which was in this tiny little, it was almost like you drove behind it's like a garage. Yeah, it was like you drove and it was like a back garage door and you'd go in with your little growler and they would fill it up. And now it's moved across the street from there. It's a beautiful place to go in and get your beer. But they had a beer, really two beers, one of which was Sea Hag and the other, which is called Gandhi Bot. And these beers that they were brewing for me were interesting because, you know, I liked Sierra Nevada, but you know how I described before it had that... um the kind of like a piney flavor to it. And now I know that there's certain hop varieties that, you know, not, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but, you know, Cascade, Centennial, things like that, that have that flavor profile. And the West Coast breweries, as you were mentioning before, that were really kind of uh, trailblazing this American IPA, um, pale ale flavor, were using those kinds of hops. And for me, New England brewing, you know, they were using some newer hop varietals and they were using hops that instead of being pine forward, were more citrus forward, right? And so like I was starting to taste things in the beer like grapefruit and that really for me, I was like, oh my God, I remember having a sip of Gandhi bot one time and I described it like this way to somebody else. I was like, it's like I just bit into a grapefruit with the peel still on and somebody else was like, that sounds awful. And I was like, oh, but it's so good. It's, you know, and uh, for me, that like citrusy IPA, that in my memory is my introduction to that. And, uh, you know, I, I really dug that. And so I drank Gandhi Bot and Siag. You know, you had mentioned Lagunitas was another one who kind of from California who kind of got in on that, that you could get. And they actually showed up one time at the Real Ale Festival with some version of their beer, which at that point was the most citrusy beer I'd ever had because I just kept going back and getting it again and again and again. And I don't remember which beer. something, something. It might have been. Is that what it was? I don't know if it was that one. I don't know if it was either. Yeah, but it was good. And for me, that was like the beginning. And I don't, I can't put a year on it. Um, it's very hard, but that's probably sometime in like the late aughts, probably around 10 years ago, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but micro comes in later, I think than that. But New England Brewing Company was there before the restaurant micro was there. When I had that Gandhi bot, one of the memories of Gandhi bot, I was drinking it at Prime 16 in New Haven. All right, because I remember I knew about New England Brewing Company, maybe just a little bit. And you told me there's this beer that you really wanted to get. And we drove up and you got the Galaxy beer and you brought the Galaxy beer home. And then with the Real Ale Festival, we used to always get the same spot in the brew room at Bar, which is a brew hub. And you could try their own beer. And that was like a little bit of this, too. 
but we always got this corner where we could hang out and we had space and we made sure we'd get there early because we bought special tickets because we got an hour early so we could get around before it got really crowded. And then we'd stand in this quarter. And this is one of the beautiful parts of why I love this subculture is me, you, uh, your brother, your uncle Stu. We would stand there and we would bring back the beer and we'd be like, what do you get? And then we talk about it. And like you said, like tastes like uh, you're biting into a grapefruit with the peel still on it. We examine these beers it wasn't like oh, i just finished mowing the lawn i'm gonna chug this beer which makes sense to me at this point in my life but it was like an engagement in a process of the senses and i love novelty so there were also these weird beers to try and i remember the first couple of years when we went to the real ale fest your brother and i would always go get like the jalapeno pepper flavored beer and we'd drink and it'd be like uh uh, this is weird. I guess it's, it, I mean, we weren't willing to admit that it was gross, but it was gross. And then eventually, as we evolve in this culture and we talk more and we investigate more and we find more and you're getting into New England Brewing Company and you notice the Lagunitas. And then one year we're at the Real Ale Festival and it starts to happen like this. Our palates start to shift towards the IPA. So we start to find the IPA we really like at Nebco. You started this and then we just go back and almost all of our tickets end up in that guy's little glass because that's the one we want. So one year we tasted this IPA and we were like, oh man, there's something going on here that we haven't experienced before. This is not only new, but it's delicious. So we all ended up just going over and over again. And it was Sip of Sunshine. It wasn't labeled Sip of Sunshine. It was, it had like a brown paper bag, like ripped off like a grocery bag taped to the front of it. And it said like special beer from Vermont or something like that. I don't know why they didn't say it was Sip of Sunshine, but I just remember going back so many times that they didn't want to give me any more at one point. And I was like, but this is the best beer here by far. <laughs> Please give me two more ounces. Eventually, we figure out that we were drinking this beer called Sip of Sunshine because we're not even as deep as you can get. They probably labeled it with a brown bag because there were probably other people at the Real Ale Festival that knew Sip of Sunshine. And if they knew Sip of Sunshine was there, they would have mobbed that because uh, it got crowded through the course of the day. Because there's like beer festivals going on in Vermont that are like beyond our wildest imaginations at this point in our life. But uh, I think this is around the time where we start to hear whisperings about this magical thing called Heady Topper. I'm not sure if we tried Heady before, Sip. I don't think the chronology matters too much, but it became like a, a white whale. My first two white whales of beers were uh, Pliny the Elder, which I had always heard whisperings about, but Heady Topper. And then you finally get Heady Topper. Yeah, Heady Topper. So just for a little context, essentially going from that style that I attributed to New England Brewing Company, taking the West Coast hop forward IPA, except using hops that highlight citrus instead of pine. A couple of breweries in Vermont, um, really the two original ones that I could think of would be the Alchemist and Lawson's, right? Those are the ones that stick out in my mind. We're brewing these beers that not only were they hop forward in terms of this like citrusy hop flavor, but they were like hazy beers that weren't clear and they had this like almost like a viscosity to them they were a little almost like i don't want to say thick but they have a softer mouthfeel there it was just a whole different thing but it was almost like drinking juice you know where it's just like this flavor bomb of citrusy goodness in your mouth when you drink these beers the style i'm describing here is what eventually came to be known as the new england ipa which was officially classified as the Juicy or Hazy Double IPA Style by the Brewers Association Beer Style Guidelines in 2018. These IPAs have a high alcohol content, over 7.5%, and are typically described as having intense fruit flavors and aromas, a soft body, and a smooth mouthfeel. 
They often have an opaque color with substantial haze and have less perceived bitterness than traditional IPAs, but are always massively hop-forward. This emphasis on late hopping, especially dry hopping, with hops with tropical fruit qualities, lends the specific juicy character for which this style is known. The New England IPA has undoubtedly been the hottest trend in craft over the past few years, with many small and larger craft brewers trying their hand at some version of a hazy IPA-style beer. In 2018, its first year as a competition category at the Great American Beer Festival, the juicy or hazy double IPA style garnered more entries than any other style category, dethroning the American IPA as the most entered beer for the first time in 16 years. For more on the New England IPA phenomenon, see the links in the show notes. Really, the first one that I think had huge notoriety was Hetty Topper, right? So we started hearing about this beer. There's this beer, Hetty Topper, but you can't get it. The only way you can get it is to basically drive to the brewery in Vermont and wait in line and get the beer. And there's only so much and it's only distributed like locally around there at the time. So it starts showing up in different places where like, you know, I remember being at a fish concert where there's people walking around the lot with a backpack full of heady topper selling them for like 20 bucks a can and people spending $20 for a can of beer and me being like, whoa, that's crazy. But, um, you know, I don't even remember how I ended up with some heady topper, but I did. It might have been through my brother, Dan, or somebody. And uh, I just remember trying it the first time and being like, wow, this is this is a really new thing. And like to me, that is when from that point forward, trying to find these white whale beers because they started to pop up like different breweries like Trillium and Treehouse and they start to pop up and you can go get these other beers now and this is when we really started seeking out these double IPAs. And to me, at least in New England, craft breweries exploded on double IPA. You know, like this was a new thing and a new style or like the logical last extension of this style that had been evolving over years and everybody wanted it. And that was all you wanted to do was go find these new beers, these rare beers and, and try them. I have this memory almost as much as you have the Rolling Rock memory. You know, I'm living around the corner from you. You call me. I have Hetty Topper. It's like in the afternoon. Uh, it's not even like at night. And I'm like, all right, I'm coming over right now to try it. I remember it sitting on the granite countertop of the peninsula, the silver can, reading on the can. It says drink directly out of the can, uh, being so excited, pouring one of the little beer tasters we have from the Bar Brew Festival, pouring it in there, but also taking a sip of it out of the can so I could try the different flavor of what it was like out of the can as they recommended versus what it was like out of the glass. And then I remember because I said this phrase at least like 20 plus times afterwards, uh, whenever I would sip Hetty Topper with anybody who uh, was having it, especially for the first time, I would say, it's like a melody across your tongue. I would say that like every time I had it because there were so many different flavors going on. It blew like everything I had before it away uh, and it became this new level. And then, like you said, this double IPA and hazy single IPAs like in a similar ballpark start showing up. Your little brother starts getting this treehouse beer. Uh, he was how I got introduced to Trillium. It's the first time we have Trillium. And like so running to your house not uh, in my car, uh, driving to your house as quickly as possible to try the new beers that are showing up at your house. Because for a long time, I was with you because I just had kids. I was with you. The beer needs to come to me. I can't search it out. But we got really lucky like because beer started to show up. I remember being in your basement with one of our first lineups, which becomes a big thing. Uh, and between you and your brother and our buddy Sal, we have Hetty Topper. We have Sip of Sunshine. 
we have second fiddle, and we have Julius. And then I think you had some grapefruit sculpin in the fridge, which at that point was like, oh, grapefruit sculpin. But it's also like one of these big moments in this whole thing. And then the four of us trying these beers in a row and being like, this one's got a little bit more of this and uh, trying those beers in the beginning of the lineup. Yeah, the lineup beers were fun. And, you know, again, it was this whole idea of there's all this stuff being produced and like, what can you get? And, you know, I got this one and, and then, you know, my brother actually got into like trading beers for a while. And, and then the other thing that was interesting is like people that I knew that like weren't really beer drinkers, they were suddenly in on this phase, you know, like the, they had these double IPAs and they liked them. Generally speaking, the West Coast IPAs that pioneered the American style highlight the bitterness of hops over everything, where East Coast IPAs strike a balance between malty sweetness and hoppy bitterness. Whereas West Coast IPAs are drier and have an aggressive bitterness, an East Coast IPA is sweeter on the front end, which fades into bitterness thanks to the hops. As an offshoot of the East Coast style, New England IPAs are distinctly juicy, as in, they can sometimes taste like you took a bite into a tropical fruit or citrus with the rind still on. Previous holdouts, who due to the early dominance of the West Coast style, thought that craft and bitter were synonymous, as well as newbies to the craft beer scene, have typically found it somewhat easier to get in on the game through the New England IPA's more approachable flavors, which has increased overall interest in craft beer. And it really became this thing that it was almost like a club. You know, like once you found out someone you met, drank, craft, you'd start comparing lists. It's like, oh, have you had this? Have you had that? And then I actually even at one point ended up on this social beer app called Untapped, where you log your beers and you have friends and you toast each other as you're trying all these new beers. And there's people in there that have tried thousands of beers, you know, and they trade with each other and they do all kinds of things. And it's like this whole community of people. And we really got into this idea. And now, so think about how it evolves. At the end of high school, we're just getting beers basically to drink as many as we can. And you want one that tastes good enough that you don't think it's disgusting. That was essentially the original goal, I think. And then, you know, Newcastle was kind of like this little bit of a gateway. And now we're at the point where we're acquiring beers. It almost has nothing to do with the fact that we're going to put a buzz on or, or get drunk. I mean, having that little buzz and that social experience was certainly a nice benefit, but it was not the main thing. The main thing was like literally trying all these different beers and comparing the flavors and lining them up in just the right sequence. And so your job always, Jeff, was and still is to decide which beers are we going to drink? What order are we going to drink them in? And then you also are the person who pours the beers, which is very important because you have a very unique skill of being able to pour exactly the same amount of beer into like four, five, six different, no matter what size beer it is and how many glasses we have, the same amount of beer ends up in all those glasses. And so now you're trying these little bits. And now all of a sudden it's like, how many different beers can we try as opposed to, and you're never drinking one whole beer because if you drank one and I drank one, we'd drink three and that would be the end of it, right? Instead, you're drinking an ounce or two of each one. And uh, it just became such a fun social experience. And, you know, I really appreciated that because, you know, it was just a way to spend some time and bond and have cool discussions and stuff. It's funny, like the role you end up taking and the pride you end up taking in that role, because I took a lot of pride in building those lineups. I would take slight offense if like one of our friends who uh, wasn't quite as into it questioned like one of my my choices because I would sit down, I would look 
at like the beers that we were drinking. Sometimes I would look at the hops. I wasn't fully like aware or look at sometimes the beers wouldn't put the hops on there. Uh, I would think about the ABV. I would think about my past experience drinking this and I would purposely set up a lineup where we would get maximum flavor out of all these beers. And then people would come in and they'd be like, that's the best beer we have. Why aren't we drinking that one first? I'd be like, well, if we drink this one first, it's going to ruin every other beer you have here. So you want to save that last because it's still going to hold up afterwards. You know, there was all this effort got into it. And it meant a lot to me when like somebody would say, hey, that was a good lineup, Jeff. Thanks. Got the end of it. And then the influx of the amount of beers we're able to put in this lineup, because it starts with like that four beer lineup that we randomly had. And then we end up having, like you said, the more people you have, the more beers you get to try because you split it more and you're, you know, you tasted nine beers, but you only end up drinking two because it's split between four or five different people. We end up having these lineups up in Vermont when we go to this house. We ended up having these lineups that were like 20 plus beers long. Remember, we had it on the mantle above the fireplace that one year. It was over 20 beers. So Connecticut beers continue to explode. Like you said, I think the double IPA and the single IPA that just make this giant explosion to Connecticut beers. I ended up becoming the guy who drove there. It was inevitable, I think. And the guys in Vermont that were originally these tiny little garages have expanded into larger breweries. They're easier to get. So I drove to The Alchemist. I drove to Hill Farmstead one year and we had these giant lineups. But like you said, those were good moments. Those were good times because it was more than just sitting around and BSing. There was like this little thing connecting us that we could all talk about yeah and now it's almost gotten to the point it's it's funny i think back to yesterday the three beers we drank yesterday like seven or eight years ago that would have been the best beer drinking day of my whole life in terms of trying these rare amazing beers it just wouldn't have been possible and you had them and it wasn't even hard for you to get them right all you had to do was be willing to spend the time to drive up there and you had them it's like Now we're in this space where we have all these options, right? I used to brew beer and, you know, I did that for a couple of years and, you know, I I made some pretty good beer. I had the kegerator in my kitchen. I went full in, you know, like I learned about the process and it really helped me appreciate the craft of brewing, what was actually happening, why I was tasting what I was tasting, how they were doing it. But it got to a certain point where it was like diminishing returns. You know, I would put in all this effort to brew a beer that was pretty good and I had it there, but I could literally drive, you know, 10 minutes from my house and have beer that was amazing, right? You know, eventually some guys split off from Nebco and they opened Counterweight, which is literally right in the town where I live. My brother opened a brewery and it just became this thing where it was like ubiquitous all of a sudden. In January 1985, there were 100 craft breweries open and operating in the U.S., including early craft pioneers like Sierra Nevada and the Boston Beer Company. By 1996, the number of craft breweries had grown to 1,000, and 50 different categories were recognized and judged at the Great American Beer Festival. The first American Craft Beer Week took place in 2006, and in 2014, craft beer production volume saw an 18% increase over the previous year, with IPA taking over the overall production lead for the first time. By 2016, there were over 5,000 craft breweries operating in the U.S. By 2019, there were over 8,000. In 2019, craft breweries captured 13.6% of the overall U.S. beer market, with sales totaling over $29 billion, up from just slightly over $10 billion in 2011. And Ken Grossman, who founded Sierra Nevada way back in 1980, has a net worth of $1 billion. And it wasn't hard anymore to get beers. It wasn't such a big deal to get Hetty Topper anymore um, or even 
Sip of Sunshine, which is still an amazing beer, but it's now contract brewed out of a bigger brewery out of two roads, 30 minutes away from my house. So you can get it everywhere. There was a time where I would hear a rumor that, oh my goodness, you know, this store has Sip. And if you knew they had it and you went in there and you said to the person selling the beer, like, hey, I heard you have some Sip. They would sell you a four pack, one. It wouldn't even be out on the shelves because someone would come in and buy it all up, you know, and uh, there'd be limits. And now you just get it. The other day I saw it on the shelf and I just walked right by it like it was nothing. So again, it's like this funny thing. It's it's like you you have it all here for you now. Do you still want as much of it or do you appreciate it as much as you did before? And I think you do uh, to a certain extent. But to me, there's no real like saying, oh, I had this one or I had that. Like before there was some kind of thing to it where it was like you could check these ones off your list and they were hard to get. And there was almost a sport to it. Right. And it was like a friendly competition. And now it's just like, yeah, there's just so many. You can't even possibly hope to try them all. Yeah, it's funny, too, because the price point used to be a major thing. And I remember you calling me and you being like, oh, this store, they not only have sip, but my brother went in and they have like three pallets of sip and it's not hidden behind the counter and you could go get it, but it's 25 bucks a four pack. And now because sip is already available, I see it most of the time it's 14.99 or 13.99. So if we go back to the college years when we're just ingesting beer for the social lubricant aspect of it, we used to buy cases for 5.99. That's what we looked for. And now you're spending 14.99 for a four pack. But you rationalize that. My favorite rationalization is, oh, well, if I bought a fancy bottle of wine, it would be way more expensive than this beer. And I like this beer more because when I drive up to Treehouse, um, like I said, it's my moment of solace. I do it like every month and a half during the pandemic. I'm dropping hundreds of dollars to get like three cases of beer, but I have it in my fridge and I drink it and I share it. I've made friends through craft beer. It's a new thing to talk about outside of sports. I'm still invested in it because I still find enjoyment in it. It's no longer about getting that beer that nobody else has, but I've turned my wife to a Treehouse fan. So now it's about, I have a fridge full of Treehouse. It's amazing. You know, still considered one of the best breweries in America. And I could go any night and I could open the fridge and I could find a beer and I could ask my wife, do you want some of this beer? And I'll pour her one of the real ale fest tasters, like a six ouncer. And then I'll pour myself a 12 ounce tulip and we'll split a beer and just enjoy it. It's definitely a different thing, but it's still there for me. Yeah. And I like it too. Honestly, I just, what happened for me is my palate started to shift a little bit. I started to just feel like I wanted some different flavors. I also, you know, just kind of went through this transition where I can't drink that many and feel good. If I want to feel good and go to sleep at night and do all that. So I just started consuming less overall. And by consuming less overall, that just means I'm trying less beers. And so now I maybe might have one or two in a week. Whereas before, you know, I'd, it was just more than that. Like you, I like to split one with Gerilyn and I'll have a few ounces and, and we'll just try it. And then it's always great to get together in these social situations. But I only want like a little bit. I want to try a few things. I still really like them. You know, what's funny is, since March, I've probably purchased the most from Counterweight because I wanted to support the local business and they have a really great convenient system for curbside pickup. But I think the beer I've actually connected with the most is Miller High Life, which is the beer that to me tastes the most like my image of that beer that I used to have a slug from my dad's bottle back in the backyard when I was a little kid. So maybe it's a little bit of the nostalgia or maybe it's a little bit of I, I just want something that's very simple 
even though maybe it's not so simple to brew a beer that's like that, you know, but in my mind, maybe what I was yearning for was a little more of that passive absorption of, of culture instead of like being so active about like trying the beer and analyzing the beer and doing it. And I love that. And obviously there's a side of me that the appeal to that is, is great. And when we had those couple yesterday, you know, I was like, oh yeah, this is something I could get used to doing again every Saturday for sure. You know, this is, this is great. Um, but, uh, you know, I think like anything, there's that balance. And for me at this point, it's I, I want to drink what I feel like drinking. And, you know, whatever it is, when I have it, I want to make sure because I don't drink them so much. I want to just make sure that the beer I'm having matches the experience I want to have at the time that I want to have it. And I love the fact that we have this craft world. I appreciated being a part of that culture. And I, I still, you know, I'm on the fringes of it, obviously. But it's been an interesting thing to like kind of see the evolution of from over the time we've basically been adults, that this whole subgenre of beer culture basically became a big thing. And we were there and we were a part of it all along as it kind of went along. And, you know, it, it's interesting because it has all its, it has all the hallmarks of any subculture, right? It's this whole thing that we're doing socially together, that we're making it into something around this thing, which in this case happens to be craft beer. And really what it enabled us to do was, like you said, meet some new friends, build some relationships, have some great social experiences. And also at the same time, you know, appreciate this thing on a deeper level, connect to the history of beer, connect to this artisan concept of a person using their creative energies to craft something, to make something. Beer's been being brewed for maybe as many as, you know, six, 7,000 years, you know, like this is deep human experience. It's the same kind of feeling that I get when I bake bread. It's like something very fundamentally human about this part of our culture at this point that I feel like we were connecting to and I'm still connecting to in maybe just an evolving way. Well, some people argue that beer is actually a big part of the agricultural revolution. They say it goes back that far. I mean, I love tapping into that. And I love what you said earlier. I love where we are today is heading more towards a balance because I've grown. I understand that corporations can be a benefit. But what I see in these smaller businesses, what I see in the craft breweries is I see beautiful illusions. I see more of the possibility for specific subjective experiences to come through rather than this ubiquitous subjective experience that the larger culture forces upon all of us of all of us drinking American lagers. And what's beautiful about the craft beer is that it's coming from, like you said, at the Real Ale Festival, you see the brewer and the brewer is going to tell you about his beer and the brewer cares about his beer. This is his beautiful illusion. He's created it. He loves it. He wants you to drink it and he wants you to like it. I recognize when I go to a golf course, I've made this mistake before. I'll occasionally bring this giant 8% double IPA and it's 95 degrees in the middle of summer. I go to the golf course like once a year, but it's 95 degrees in the middle of summer and I crack this beer and I'm like, because uh, I just had a really great experience a couple summers ago. I was in Pennsylvania with my brother-in-law, my nephew and my dad and the beer they had was Yingling, which is a, an amazing corporation. Not one of the... America's oldest brewery. Yeah, not one of the giants, but they've existed for all this time my wife and i actually went to pottsville this was one of our brewery trips and anyway, i drank a six pack of yingling as we were driving around the course and it was awesome i didn't drink a six pack i drank a three pack i split it with my brother-in-law but it just tasted really good and refreshing in that moment and like it heated the summer so 
you know, the balance and the, the beautiful illusion that craft beer has brought back into some of the world, the regional differences that you developed, the New England IPA versus the West Coast IPA. We didn't even talk about stouts, which is a whole nother world. It's really fun. It's returning nuance to life, making it a little bit more amusing. Yeah. Again, it's it's taking this big thing and breaking it down into these littler things. And nuance, I think, is a good way to to talk about it. And it really is just a cool thing to be into. I'm making pizza for dinner tonight. And I'll tell you what, there's 0% chance that I'm not going to have a beer. It's probably going to be a lager. <laughs> and it's probably going to have been brewed within five miles of my house. But it's an interesting thing from a historical perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a social perspective. It really does hit all of those little pieces that we talk about when we talk about, you know, what it is to have a an individual beautiful illusion or to have this bigger collective beautiful illusion, right? Um, and I think what is beautiful about being a human that's alive and has these conscious subjective experiences is the ability to participate in these kinds of cultural, I don't want to call it a trend, but these cultural threads through history that connect us all the way back to the earliest human civilizations to right now, today in 2020. And I have no doubt that as long as there's humans around, we're going to continue to evolve this culture. And I'm happy to be alive and be a part of that. Yeah. Cheers and drink <laughs> whatever you love. But I think we legally have to say drink it responsibly yep. and engage in it sometimes. Right. And think about what you're drinking. Thank you for listening to Beautiful Illusions. We sincerely hope you enjoyed the conversation and more importantly, that it made you think about something in a new way. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and more importantly, share with your friends. The Beautiful Illusions theme was written, performed, and recorded by Darren Vigliotti and Joseph Vigliotti. For a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference, corrections and elaborations, as well as other miscellaneous bits and pieces, please visit our website, beautifulillusions.org. 